Well, howdy y'all. Welcome back to Once Upon a Time in Texas. This is episode number 51. Um, 51 being a nice temperature, if uh, we could get that. Holy crap. Have any of y'all been freezing your butts off the last few days? Um, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to, uh, to some 40s and 50s temperatures again. That, that's not bad. This uh, 8, 9, 10 degrees is just total and complete crap. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some friends that live in a little more northern, you know, northern climates. And they all make fun of me. But in our defense here, like, we aren't built for this crap. Like, Texans are pretty tough people for the most part. But, uh, yeah, I talked to a friend of mine that's in, uh, like, Detroit area. And he's like, oh, my God, you guys are all whining about, you know, water pipes being frozen and all that. Well, yeah, that's, I looked it up. The frost line up there in, like, Detroit is something like four feet deep. So they bury their water lines super, super deep. The frost line here in North Texas is, like, 11 inches. <laughs> and so a lot of our water pipes aren't buried that deep. And our crawl spaces under the houses aren't usually insulated. As a matter of fact, most of the time they're well ventilated because they get hot during the summer. But the problem with that is um, ventilation also, you know, it's made to help cool things down. Well, that's a problem when it's cold outside, I guess. I don't know. Trying to figure something out, but I can tell you that uh, my 111-year-old house is a wee bit on the drafty side. And so, working on that, thinking about that. But I'm not complaining. So, uh, in case you guys don't know, this is your host, Michael Mitchell. I am the host of Once Upon a Time in Texas. And uh, to kind of sum up what I was saying, uh, basically, uh, Canada... Your weather got drunk and stumbled its way down here to Texas. Y'all need to come get it and take it back up there. Because y'all are prepared for it. <laughs> We're not. All right, so uh, battleships. Battleships are uh, fascinating, don't y'all think? And our Navy is one of the best, if not the best, Navy in the world. Did you know that there was a battleship? Named after Texas? I'm sure some of y'all did. Of course you did. And most people probably do. But, do you know that it was really a ship of firsts? Because I didn't until I got to digging into this. It was the first ship to receive a lot of things to have been tested and, uh, you know, tested out before installing on other and future battleships. Yeah, the USS Texas is one of the most interesting battleships of its day, and not just because of its name. So, uh, yeah, let's take a look at the USS Texas. So, before we mosey on down to the Gulf Coast, I would like to thank our sponsors, as always, me and Victory Home Loans. I know there are tons of people moving to and in Texas and Oklahoma, where I am licensed. Um, but we are licensed in, uh, 15 total states. So yeah, I can kind of help y'all out anywhere. So pretty much if you know someone moving and looking for a new house, pretty much kind of anywhere, send them my way to themichaelmitchell.com. T-H-E michaelmitchell.com. You can work with someone who's at least a little entertaining and works hard to make that process faster, cheaper, and easier I love educating people on home loans, letting them know what they're getting into and how to be successful in doing a mortgage. So like I said, T-H-E MichaelMitchell.com, TheMichaelMitchell.com. Let me help them out. Remember when you work with me in Victory Home Loans, we sell dreams, not mortgages. All right, so where did this idea um, to talk about the USS Texas come from? Well, it's simple. My buddy and fellow scouting volunteer, Carl Rose, he's been at home listening a lot to my podcast lately, and I appreciate him so much. Good dude. And he was listening to a previous podcast of mine, or 
Maybe it was a TikTok or a Facebook post. I don't remember. Anyway, I was telling scouting stories from when I was younger and some of the fun we had. And uh, I don't know. Maybe I talked about going to the USS Batfish, I think is what it was called. Uh, it was a submarine that was parked in Oklahoma. And I can remember going there as a Cub Scout. And it was one of the coolest things that I've ever done. And uh, anyway, I was just kind of talking about that and some other scouting stuff. And, and Carl started thinking about some of the fun stuff that he had done. And one of them was going down to the USS Texas, down on the Gulf Coast, getting to tour it and what a cool ship it was. Now, I've never been on the Texas, and I've never been on the Lexington, which are both down on the Gulf Coast. Um, but I have been to Galveston and seen some of that stuff. And uh, I guess the ships, you know, that are down there, there is a, uh, there is a submarine there. It's not a ship. It's a submarine. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not sure. I've forgotten. I've been to so many cool things, so I've kind of forgotten. But we went down. The kids had a good, a good, you know, good time. And he said, hey, you know what? You ought to do something on your podcast about the USS Texas. And I thought, well, you know what? That sounds cool. I'll check it out. And you know what? Old Carl was right. <laughs> the USS Texas does have some pretty good, uh, interesting history. So I'd like to tip my hat to the websites that I went and dug around on, uh, battleshiptexas.org, uh, of course, Wikipedia, because that's, you know, everything on Wikipedia is true, right? And, uh, history.navy.mil. That's where I kind of dug around and found a lot of the history and information that I'm providing on the podcast today. So shout out to them. So let's talk a little general history about the USS Texas before we get into some of the nitty gritty. So the USS Texas, also designated BB-35, is a museum ship and former U.S. Navy New York class battleship. She was launched on May 18, 1912, but was not commissioned by the Navy until March 12, 1914. Probably because even though you can launch it, there's still a whole lot of stuff to do. You know, it's kind of like putting up the frame of a house, I guess. You can put up the frame and the roof and the windows and doors, but there's still a lot to finish before you can move in. So I'm thinking that's probably the difference between launched and commissioned. So the Texas served in Mexican waters following the uh, Tampico incident, but saw no action there and made numerous sorties into the North Sea during World War I without engaging the enemy, though she did fire in anger, it says, for the first time when shooting medium-caliber guns at supposed submarines. However, no evidence exists that there were submarines in the area and suggests they were just really nothing more than waves. And who knows? Maybe the guys were just ready to shoot some stuff off and just shot out in the sea. In World War II, Texas escorted war convoys across the Atlantic and later shelled French forces in the North African landings and German-held beaches in the Normandy landings before being transferred to the Pacific Theater late in 1944 to provide naval gunfire support during the battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. She was the only Allied battleship that took part in all four of these amphibious landings and then was decommissioned in 1947-48, having earned a total of five battle stars for service in World War II. Texas was also a technological testbed, the first U.S. battleship to mount anti-aircraft guns, the first U.S. warship to control gunfire, with directors and range keepers, the first U.S. battleship to launch an aircraft, and one of the first U.S. Navy warships to receive production radar. She was also the first battleship in the world to be outfitted with 14-inch guns. So yeah, that's a lot. But it doesn't end there. Texas is also the first U.S. battleship to become a permanent museum ship 
Although the USS Alabama Museum was opened January 9th, 1965. In 76, she became the first battleship to be declared a U.S. National Historic Landmark and is the only remaining World War I-era dreadnought battleship. She is also one of the eight remaining battleships and the only remaining capital ship to have served in both world wars. Texas is owned by the people of Texas and is officially under the jurisdiction of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and everyday operations and maintenance of the Texas have been handled by the nonprofit organization Battleship Texas Foundation since August of 2020. And we'll talk a little more about it towards the end of the podcast, but in August of 2022, she was moved to a dry dock in Galveston to undergo a $35 million repair project. And as of 2023, it's still underway. So there's a little high-level history, but let's dig into, you know, some like down and dirty history. So let's talk about its construction. So the U.S. Congress authorizes the construction of the Texas, which is the second Navy ship to be named after that state. And, and they, I guess, put it out, authorized the construction on June 24th, 1910. So 114 years ago. So bids for Texas were accepted from, you know, September through December of 1910 with a winning bid of $5.83 million. Think about that. They were building the entire ship for $5.83 million, And now we're doing a $35, or $35 million repair and upfit of the ship. So this $5.83 million excluded the price of armor and armament, and it was submitted by the Newport News Shipbuilding Yard. Contract was signed in December, and the plans were delivered to the building yard seven days later. Texas's keel was laid down on April 17, 1911, at the Newport News Virginia Shipyard. Texas's main battery consisted of 10... 14-inch 45-caliber Mark I guns, which could fire 1,400-pound armor-piercing shells at a range of 13 miles. Think about that. You could lob an explosive shell 13 miles. I can't even get my kids to lob the trash into the trash can. Yet, we can launch shells 13 miles from the USS Texas. She also has mounted uh, four 21-inch torpedo tubes for the Bliss Levitt Mark 8 torpedo, one on the uh, one each on the port side bow and stern, and starboard bow and stern. The, tor- the torpedo rooms held 12 torpedoes total plus 12 naval defense mines. March 24th, 1914, Texas departed the Norfolk. Norfolk, I can't even say that right, Norfolk Navy Yard, and set a course to New York City, making an overnight stop in Tompkinsville, New York, on the night of March 26, 1914. So it entered the New York Navy Yard on the next day and spent the next three weeks there undergoing installation of fire control equipment. During its stay in New York, President Woodrow Wilson ordered a number of ships of the Atlantic fleet to Mexican waters in response to tension created when a detail of Mexican federal troops detrained an American gunboat crew at Tampico, Mexico. The problem was quickly resolved locally, but Rear Admiral Henry T. Mayo sought further redress by demanding an official disavowal of the act by the Huerta regime and a 21-gun salute to the American flag. This was basically a way for us to snub our nose at the Mexicans who pissed us off at that time. President Wilson saw in the incident an opportunity to put pressure on a government he felt was undemocratic. There's a lot of history there. I have read some about that, but long story short, the Mexican regime at the time pissed us off and we weren't going to take it. 
So on April 20th, uh, shoot, I keep losing my years here. April 20th, 1914, Woodrow Wilson places the matter before U.S. Congress and sent orders to Rear Admiral Frank Friday Fletcher, commanding the naval forces off the Mexican coast, instructing him to land a force at Veracruz and to seize the customs house there in retaliation for what is now known as the Tampico Incident. And that was carried out April 21st and 22nd, 1914. So basically, you mess with us, we mess with you, and we're bigger. (laughs) So due to the intensity of the situation, Texas, the USS Texas, was actually put to sea on May 13th and headed directly to operational duty without doing its usual shakedown cruises and post-shakedown repairs, you know, kind of working out the kinks. Nope. It's like the USS Texas, you boys are going to work. So after a five-day stop at Hampton Roads from May 14th through 19th, she joined Rear Admiral Fletcher's forces off Veracruz May 26th and remained in Mexican waters just a little over two months, supporting the American forces on shore. On August 8, 1914, she leaves Veracruz and sets a course for Night Bay, Cuba, and from there steamed on back to New York, where she entered the Navy shipyard on August 21st, presumably to, you know, do some repairs and work out some of the kinks they found. So the battleship remains there until September 6th, so, uh, you know, what is that, 10, 17 days, three weeks, roughly. And then she returns to sea, joins the Atlantic fleet, and settles into a schedule of normal fleet operations. In October 1914, she returns to the Mexican coast. Later that month, Texas became a station ship at Tuxpan, a duty that lasted until November 4th, when she steamed to Galveston, Texas. So while at Galveston, the Texas governor, Oscar Colquitt, presents the ship's silver service. Um, I think the silver service, I think they're talking about silverware. I never really could say, but presented, it just says presented the ship's silver service to Captain Grant and the Young Men's Business League of Waco, Texas raised the $10,000 to purchase the silver. And I guess $10,000, I guess they're also talking about, you know, like the silver trays and, you know, silver coffee and tea, whatever's basically the service sets for the ship. So that's kind of cool. So Texas sailed again for Tampico on November 14th and thereafter to Veracruz where she remained for another month. The ship left Mexico on December 20th and set a course for New York again and entered the New York Navy Yard on December 28th and remained there undergoing more repairs until February 16th, 1915. On May 25th, Texas, along with battleships South Carolina, Louisiana, and Michigan, rescued 230 passengers from the damaged Holland America Line passenger ship Rhinedam, which had been rammed by Norwegian-flagged fruit steamer the Joseph J. Cunio. In gratitude, the Holland America Line presented Texas with a model of a 17th century warship, which I believe is still with the ship, um, I guess, in Dry Dog. So in 1916, Texas became the first U.S. battleship to mount anti-aircraft guns with the addition of two 3-inch or 76-millimeter 50-caliber guns on platforms atop the boat cranes and the first to control gunfire with directors and rangefinders which were basically analog forerunners to today's computers. So the Texas doesn't see much action in World War I, but there are a few things to note. So the Texas conducted exercises and training um, the Naval Armed Guard gun crews for service on board merchant ships. So one of the gun crews trained aboard the Texas was assigned to the merchant vessel Mongolia at the beginning of World War I. And... On April 19, 1917, the crew of the Mongolia sighted a surfaced German U-boat and the gun crew trained aboard 
the Texas opened fire on the U-boat, averting an attack on the Mongolia and firing the first official American shots of World War One. So although we were kind of involved, kind of not involved, the boys trained on the Texas fire the first shots, even though they were on board the Mongolia. On September 27, 1917, the USS Texas runs hard aground on Block Island uh, by New York. So Captain Victor Blue and his navigator, confused about shore lights and more concerned about the minefield at the opening of Long Island Sound, made the turn at the wrong time and ran the ship aground. And so for three days, the crew lightened the ship Um, I guess unloading all kinds of stuff, basically to no avail. And on September 30th, Tugs had to come and assist, and she was finally able to back clear. The hole was damaged, um, which dictated a return to the shipyard and extensive repairs, and it precluded her departure with Battleship Division 9 for the British Isles in November. The secondary battery was reduced to 18 5-inch guns in October 1917. And then Captain Blue, a protege of Navy Secretary Josephus Daniels, was never court-martialed and remained in command of the Texas. The Navy Department held his navigator entirely responsible for the accident. And no more is ever said about him. And they don't even really talk about his name. So I guess that's that. So by December 19, I guess 17, yeah. um, Repairs are completed and they move south to conduct military simulations out of the York River. Mid-January 1918 finds the battleship back at New York preparing for a voyage across the Atlantic Um, This time, this included the removal of two more of the 5-inch guns, reducing the total number aboard to 16. She departs New York on January 30th, 1918, arrives at Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland on February 11th, and rejoins the Battleship Division 9, by then known as the 6th Battle Squadron of Britain's Grand Fleet. So yes, at this time, we are in cahoots with Britain, and we are helping them out. So Texas's service with the Grand Fleet consisted entirely of convoy missions and the occasional forays to reinforce the British squadron to blockade duty in the North Sea whenever German heavy units kind of threatened going in. So Texas and her division mates passed a relatively inactive May in the Firth of Fourth, and then from June 30th to July 2nd, uh, 1918, Texas and her colleagues acted as escort for American mine layers, adding to the North Sea Mine Barrage. And then uh, the armistice ends hostilities on November 11th, 1918, and the USS Texas accompanied the Grand Fleet of Britain to meet the surrendering German fleet, The two fleets rendezvoused about 40 nautical miles east of the Isle of May and proceeded to the Firth of Forth. Afterwards, the American contingent moved to Portland Harbor, England, arriving there on December 4th. So the USS Texas really doesn't get any real action in World War I. But, I mean, saw some cool stuff. I mean, obviously escorting, you know, the German Navy in for the surrender was, you know, that's a big deal. And the Texas was there. So fired a lot of shots, really actively participated in much, not really, but still part of cool history. So during the interwar period, the Texas did a few exciting things. Uh, it went to sea in December 18th to escort President Woodrow Wilson and Battleships Division 9 and 6 to the Paris Peace Conference. And then once it returned to the States, Texas got a little overhaul again. Uh, I didn't know this. These ships usually went in once a year for overhaul. Apparently they would work on the boilers. They would yank the gun barrels off if they've been shooting much, you know, to basically 
uh, I guess, reline them, regroove them, whatever. Um, so anyway, it gets a little overhaul and it resumes duty in early 1919. And on March 10th, 1919, she becomes the first American battleship to launch an airplane off of it when Lieutenant Commander Edward O. McDonnell flew a British-built Sopwith Camel off the warship at Guantanamo Bay. So later in 1919, Texas's captain, Nathan C. Twining, successfully employed naval aircraft to spot the fall of shells during a main battery exercise. The results were that aircraft-borne gunfire spotters were significantly more accurate than shipboard spotters. Uh, in testimony to the Navy General Board, Lieutenant Commander Kenneth uh, Whiting attested that the increase in gunfire effectiveness with air spotting was likely to be as great as 200% better than shipborne sighters. So as a result of these first experiments, the Navy would add float planes to all of the fleet's battleships and newer cruisers. In May of 1919, Texas served as a plane guard and navigational aid for the successful attempt um, by Navy Curtis NC flying boat NC-4 to become the first airplane to cross the Atlantic. On July 26, 1919, Texas entered the Pacific Ocean as part of the newly formed Pacific Fleet, and she would spend the next five and a half to six years as part of the Pacific Fleet. And uh, on July 17, 1920, I believe, she was redesignated as BB-35 under the Navy's newly adopted alphanumeric system of whole classification symbols. So, really not much else happens. Just kind of does a little floating around over with the Pacific Fleet. Doesn't do anything exciting. No big refitments, whatever. So, we're going to jump forward to July 31st, 1925 where she enters the Norfolk Navy Yard for a major modernization overhaul. The overhaul, um, which um, replaced both cage masks with tripod masks, replaced her um, coal-fired boilers with six oil-fired... Uh, I cannot talk now. Oil-fired boilers, added uh, anti-torpedo bulges, and upgraded the fire control equipment and was completed on November 23rd, 1926. Also, the AA armament was increased to eight three-inch guns and the torpedo tubes were removed. Six of the five-inch guns were relocated to new main deck um, positions. And then following completion of her overhaul, Texas was designated the flagship of the United States fleet and resumed duties along the eastern seaboard. She kept at that task until late 1927, when she did a brief tour of duty in the Pacific from late September to early December. In 1927, Texas set another first with the showing of, ready for this, talking pictures for crew entertainment. That's right. So the first talking picture shown on a ship was on the USS Texas. So near the end of the year, Texas returned to the Atlantic and resumed normal duties with the scouting fleet. In January 1928, she transported President Calvin Coolidge to Havana, Cuba for the Pan-American Conference and then continued on via the Panama Canal to the West Coast for maneuvers with the fleet near Hawaii. So, from 1929 to 1937, the Texas is assigned again to the West Coast and is based out of the port of San Pedro in L.A. In 1937, she's sent back to the East Coast. And in 1937, eight 1.1-inch, I don't think that's right. I think that's 11-inch, 28-millimeter AA guns in two quadruple mounts were added to improve the light AA armament. In December 1938, Texas received uh, for testing the first ship-borne radar designed and made by a little commercial company called RCA, which we all know and love now. So basically it was testing 
and they used a 385 megahertz CXZ, which is some sort of special radar, I guess. And so Texas was the first and was one of 14 ships to receive that type of radar, which radar was a big deal back then, pretty top secret stuff. So now we're getting up to World War II. So soon after war breaks out in Europe in September 1939. So the Texas has been upgraded. We've got some badass guns. We've got this new radar stuff. So we can see you before you see us. And we can also aim at you better. <laughs> so Texas begins operating on the neutrality patrol which is an American attempt to keep the war out of the Western Hemisphere. So later, as the United States moved more towards active support of the Allied cause, the warships begin, or the warship begins convoying ships carrying lend-lease materials to the UK. In February 1941, the U.S. 1st Marine Division was activated aboard the Texas, on February 1st, Admiral Ernest J. King hoisted his flag as commander-in-chief of the reformed Atlantic Fleet aboard the USS Texas. And that same year, while on neutrality patrol in the Atlantic, Texas was stalked unsuccessfully by the German U-boat U-203. <clears throat> so on December 7th, 1941, the day of the attack of Pearl Harbor, the USS Texas was at Casco Bay, Maine, undergoing a rest and relaxation period following three months of watch duty at Naval Station Argentia, Newfoundland. After 10 days at Casco Bay, she returns to Argentia and remained there until late January 1942 when she got underway to escort a convoy to England. After delivering her charges, the battleship patrolled waters near Iceland until March when she returned home. At various times in 1942, the secondary battery was reduced to six 5-inch guns, and the light AA battery was increased, adding two extra 75 caliber quad mounts, um, and then these would be replaced by 10 quad mount 40 millimeter guns at some point. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, in June of 43. They also added 14 20 millimeter um, cannons, which was, uh, I guess that increased it to 44, 20, or I, I don't know. Should have read this a little better. Sorry, guys. So the attack on Pearl Harbor demonstrated the need for bigger, badder, asser guns, I guess. So for the next six months, she continues convoy escort missions to various destinations, on one occasion, she escorted the Guadalcanal-bound Marines as far as Panama. And on another, the warship screened service troops to Freetown, Sierra Leone, on the west coast of Africa. More frequently, she made voyages to and from the UK, escorting both um, cargo and troop-carrying ships. On October 23rd, 1943, I'm sorry, 1942, Texas embarked upon her first major combat operation when she sortied with the Task Group 34.8, the Northern Attack Group for Operation Torch, which was the invasion of North Africa. The objective assigned to this group was Port Lyote, I guess, in French Morocco. The warships arrived off the assault beaches near the village of Mahidia early in the morning of November 8th and began preparations for the invasion. Texas was transmitted, uh, I'm sorry, Texas transmitted Lieutenant General Dwight D. Eisenhower's first Voice of Freedom broadcast asking the French not to oppose Allied landings in North Africa. When the troops went ashore, Texas did not go into action immediately to support them. So at that point in the war, the doctrine of amphibious warfare was still kind of embryonic. It was still new. So many, off, uh, many army officers did not recognize the value of pre-landing bombardments, basically bombing the crap out of wherever you're going. Instead, the army insisted upon attempting a landing by surprise. So Texas entered the battle early in the afternoon when the army requested her fire 
upon the Vichy French Army ammunition dump near Point Latouille. I'm sorry, I can't even say that. L-Y-A-U-T-E-Y. I don't know what that is. One more gunfire mission was provided on the 10th before the ceasefire on November 11th. Thus, unlike in later operations, she expended only 273 rounds of 14-inch shells and six rounds of 5-inch shells, probably just for good measure. Um, During the short stay, some of her crewmen went ashore to assist in salvaging some of the ships that had been sunk in the harbor. Texas was one of only three U.S. battleships. The other two were Massachusetts and New York that took part in Operation Torch. On November 16th, Texas departs North Africa for the east coast of the United States um, in a task force along with the Savannah, Sangamon, Kennebec, four transports, and seven destroyers. The interesting thing about this is there was a young news reporter on the USS Texas at the time, a fairly new guy to news by the name of Walter Cronkite. And uh, he was on there when they started for Norfolk, Virginia. And so he was there through her service off the coast of North North Africa and then was on it on the way back to the U.S. So on the return trip, Cronkite is flown off the Texas in one of her OS-2U Kingfisher aircraft when Norfolk was within flying distance. The reason for this was he was granted permission to be flown the rest of the distance to Norfolk so he could outpace a rival correspondent that was on the USS Massachusetts to return to the U.S. and to issue the first uncensored news reports to be published about Operation Torch. So pretty much Walter Cronkite's experiences aboard the USS Texas launched his career as a war correspondent. Pretty cool stuff. Throughout 1943, Texas carried out familiar roles of convoy escorts um, with New York being her home port. Um, They go to places like Casablanca, Gibraltar, as well as frequent visits to ports in the UK. And that continued pretty much into 1944, but ends on April 22nd when at the European end of one such mission, she remained in the Clyde Estuary in Scotland and began training for the invasion of Normandy. So basically there's there's tons of stuff that happened and I know I'm running a little long and so I'm not going to go into all the invasions of Normandy because we all kind of know what happened there. Basically we bombed the crap out of everything. Um, I mean, go see Saving Private Ryan you'll see what all happened. But for the big part, the Texas was tasked with the western end of, I believe, Omaha Beach. I'm kind of reading through this again. Um, Yeah. So it was designated the Bombardment Force flagship to Omaha Beach Western Task Force. So that was the entire western half of Omaha Beach. So, big deal, obviously. Um, The Omaha Beach Bombardment Force consisted of two sections with Texas and the British light cruiser HMS Glasgow, responsible for the western half, with the USS Arkansas and the French light cruisers Georges Legay and Montcalm, responsible for east. And so, yeah, pretty much they bombed the crap out of it. Um, Texas was one of only three U.S. battleships, with the other two being Arkansas and Nevada, that took part in Operation Neptune, which was D-Day. Um, you know, pretty much they bombed the crap out of uh, Normandy, Omaha Beach that way. They navigate their way through a German minefield. Um, and, you know, when they leave, not a single Omaha Beach vessel was lost. That's a big deal. So I'm cutting out a lot of D-Day history, like I said here, because like I said, I mean, the Texas sent a lot of lead downrange in support of the invasions. But one of the coolest things that happened was on June 15th, 1944, the troops had advanced to the edge of the Texas's gun range. 
So her last fire <clears throat> support mission was so far inland that to get the needed range, they were like, we don't know what to do. So they actually flood part of the ship and its starboard torpedo blister and tubes are flooded with water and it provides a two degree list to the ship. This is first time it was ever done. So they literally flood part of the ship <laughs> to make it aim the guns a little higher. They get enough elevation and they bomb the crap out of whatever was needing to be bombed. So um, then they decide combat operations are beyond the range of her guns at that point. And on June 16th, Texas leaves Normandy for England. And there you go. So Texas is also at the Battle of Cherbourg, where it did sustain damage when a German 24-centimeter shell hits the ex and exploded the navigation bridge. The explosion causes the deck of the pilot house above to be blown upwards approximately four feet, <clears throat> wrecked the interior of the pilot house, wounded seven people, um, and killed four of the casualties, only one man died, you know, that was wounded. And that was the helmsman on duty. Um, the warship herself continued to deliver her 14-inch shells and two-gun salvos. And in spite of the damage and casualties, scored a direct hit that penetrated one of the heavily reinforced gun encampments and destroyed the gun inside. So basically... They hit the USS Texas, pisses off the crew of the Texas. So, hey, our ship is hurt, we're damaged, but now we're pissed. And we continue to bomb the crap out of them. <laughs> and then later, it's found that an unexploded 24-centimeter shell is found in the ship. The shell crashed through the port bow, directly below the wardroom, and entered the stateroom of Warrant Officer M.A. Clark, but failed to explode. It's later disarmed, and uh, that shell is displayed aboard the ship. So, yeah. It says, through the three-hour duel, the Germans straddled and near-missed the USS Texas over 65 times, and she ended up firing 206 14-inch shells at the Battery Hamburg until ordered to retire. So, anyway, September 44 goes back to New York, undergoes 36-day repair, during which the barrels of her main battery replaced. Um, they replaced all 10 of her 14-inch main gun barrels for the third and final time in her career during this refit. And, in an incredible stroke of luck, she is reunited with nine out of the 10 original gun barrels that it had, which served on it from 1914 to 1923. So um, those nine guns served with the Pennsylvania prior to it being refurbished and then them being relined and reinstalled on the Texas. And then the original gun barrels have remained on the Texas ever since then. Um... You know, then it cruises around, it ends up going to California, and then continue on out to uh, Oahu after all this. Uh, since, spends Christmas at Pearl Harbor and conducted maneuvers in the Hawaiian Islands for about a month. And uh, she steams to the uh, Uliti Atoll and uh, stops in the Mariana Islands for two days of invasion rehearsals and then sets course for... You guys guessed it, Iwo Jima. She arrives off Iwo Jima February 16th, three days before the amphibious landings, and spends three days pounding the ever-living crap out of Japanese defenses on Iwo Jima in preparation for the landing of three Marine Corps divisions. We all know what happens in Iwo Jima. But yeah, USS Texas was there and apparently sent a whole lot of lead downrange. And so, even though the island of Iwo Jima was not declared captured until later, the Texas de uh, departed um, from there, went back, um, rearms itself, and heads in for the invasion of Okinawa, which was known as Operation Iceberg. 
and basically bombs the crap out of Okinawa um, and moves in close and began, you know, basically the pre-landing bombardment. Uh, and then for the next six days, she just pounds Okinawa. And then we all know what happens there. So, yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Um, so, yeah, then it gets uh, shipped back and it arrives in the Philippines, remain there until after the Japanese surrender, um, returns to Okinawa at the end, and then ends up getting, you know, basically sent back. Let's see. It's delivered uh, back to San Pedro, California. It goes through Hawaii and starts hauling um, troops back through Hawaii, back to California in a operation called Operation Magic Carpet. And uh, basically, yeah, October 15th celebrates Navy Day. Before resuming its mission to bring American troops home, she makes two round trips between California and Oahu and makes the third one in late December 1945. And uh, <clears throat> it steams via the Panama Canal to Norfolk, where she arrived on February 13th and soon began preparations for inactivation. And on June 18th, 1946, she's placed officially in reserve in Baltimore, Maryland. <clears throat> on April 17th, 1947, the Battleship Texas Commission was established by the Texas legislature to care for the ship. So $225,000 is necessary to pay for towing her from Baltimore to San Jacinto was the first task. Um, Texas begins her journey to her new anchorage alongside the busy Houston ship channel near the San Jacinto Monument at San Jacinto State Park. Arrived on April 20th, 1948, where she was turned over to the state of Texas the next day to serve as a permanent memorial. The Texas sat across from the monument at Battleground Park in the waters of the Port of Houston, where she was ceremoniously decommissioned on the 21st, nine days later, on April 30th, 1948. Her name was struck from the Naval Vessel Register, and the Texas was the first permanent battleship memorial and museum in the U.S. Um, the USS Oregon, BB-3, was displayed as a floating museum in Portland, Oregon, from 1925 to 1941, but was scrapped in 1956. So... Yeah. So when it was presented to the state of Texas, she was commissioned as the flagship of the Texas Navy. Kind of cool. Um, so unfortunately, the commission for the battleship Texas was not up to the task of maintaining the ship. Years of neglect resulted in cracks and gaps. Um, anyway, I'm not going to get into all this too much. Basically, it wasn't taken very well care of. And uh, 1971, there's some charitable contributions made and they do some fixing and repairs. And uh, let's see. It was, uh, the Texas was designated as a National Historic Mechanical Engineering Landmark by the American Society for American Engineers in 75 and a National Historic Landmark by the National Park Service in 76. In 83, the Texas was transferred to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and they did a campaign to raise $15 million to dry dock it and do a bunch of repairs, which happened um, from 1988 to 1990. So it again served as a museum from 90 to 22, um, where it stayed at the San Jacinto Battleground State Historic Site. Uh, and then the Texas was moved to dry dock again for repairs in 2022, and the Battleship Texas um, will be moved to another port city at that time as a museum, but it's not been determined where. So it will not go back to the San Jacinto Battleground. So Texas is the first and oldest of the eight U.S. battleships that became permanent floating museums. The other battleship honored in this way are the Massachusetts, Alabama, North Carolina, New Jersey, Missouri, Wisconsin, and Iowa. 
And Texas is one of the oldest surviving modern naval ships, having turned 100 years old on March 12, 2014. Radio communications occur on the USS Texas yearly during the Museum Ship Weekend and Pearl Harbor Day. Amateur radio operations from the battleship Texas Amateur Radio operate on those two occasions under the Federal Communications Commission's call sign NA5DV, which is similar to the original call sign of the USS Texas, NADV. The Texas legislator designated the battleship Texas as the official state ship of Texas in 1995, and it's appeared in several films. Um, Her cinema debut, although brief, was in the final scene of the 1937 film Boy of the Street, starring Jackie Cooper and Maureen O'Connor. The 1966 Steve McQueen film The Sand Pebbles shot some scenes aboard the ship, but they were removed from the movie and uh, have not been found again. For the 2001 film Pearl Harbor, numerous exterior and interior shots on the Texas filmed with actors using the main decks, and numerous interior areas like bunk beds of the Texas were used for the battleships of Battleship Row during the attack on the Pearl Harbor scenes. The interior scenes of the aircraft carrier Hornet were shot inside the Texas also. Texas was chosen as a filming location for the movie because she was the only surviving American battleship that was built and in service prior to 1941. Her exterior and interior components still look very similar to the Pearl Harbor battleships that were built in the 10s and 20s. For the 2006 films Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, Actual film footage of the exterior of Texas was taken by film crews and were used to depict her fighting in Iwo Jima. Close-up shots of actors manning the smaller guns of Texas were also used. The only uh, thing added in post-production was computer-generated imagery depicting the main turrets turning and firing. So there you go. We went way longer than normal, but guys, this was cool history. So there you go, the fascinating history of the USS Texas. What do you think? Let me know what other kind of things you want to see. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors again, me and Victory Home Loans. If you know someone moving pretty much anywhere in the United States, have them give me a holler. TheMichaelMitchell.com, T-H-E-MichaelMitchell.com. I'm going to call this one a, a long podcast, so I'm going to cut some of my other comments short at this point. Thank you all for tuning in to episode 51 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. Next week is our one-year anniversary. So listen in. I have no idea what I'm going to do. We'll see. So as always, remember the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.